You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. If you rise, please, for the reading of God's Word. Everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure, but nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving because their minds and consciences are corrupted. Such people claim they know God, but they deny him by the way they live. They are detestable and disobedient, worthless for doing anything good. Do not get involved in foolish discussions about spiritual pedigrees or in quarrels and fights about obedience to Jewish laws. These things are useless and waste of time. If people are causing divisions among you, give a first and second warning. After that, have nothing more to do with them. For people like that have turned away from the truth and their own sins condemn them. I'm planning to send either Artemis or Tychicus to you as soon as one of them arrives. Do your best to meet me at Nicopolis for I've decided to stay there for the winter. Do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos with their trip, seeing that they are given everything they need. Our people must learn to do good by meeting the urgent needs of others, then they will not be unproductive. Everyone here sends greetings. Please give my greetings to the believers, all who love us. May God's grace be with you all. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Rob. Um, I appreciate that Rob had to jump between chapters. That he did it, he did that well. So thank you. Um, I hope you can see that. I think these two passages that we read they kind of go together, and you'll see why in a moment. But um, my name's Austin. I'm one of the pastors here, and for the next couple of weeks, we are going through the book of Titus. As Rob mentioned, it's one of the pastoral epistles that the Apostle Paul wrote to an early church. Uh, we're walking through this book for four weeks, and the reason we're looking at Titus is so that we can better define why we do this. Why do we come together as a church? Uh, last week, I mentioned that uh, when we study the life of the church, that's called ecclesiology. And ecclesiology comes from a Greek word, ecclesia, a word that Paul uses uh, throughout his letters to refer to the church. And when he's making that reference, uh, sometimes he's talking about church like Big C, the global church, but most of the time he's talking about little local churches. And that word ecclesia, even though we translate it church, which is a great translation for that, uh, it, it means assembly in, in Greek. And that's really helpful because it's kind of implying that um, churches get put together, they're assembled. Someone is doing some sort of placing them into existence and and God is the one who's doing that. And so we're studying why would God put us together into church communities? 
Uh, God designed church, I made a case last week, to be a discipleship school, to be a project where we're working together, something that's unfinished, but through the work of uh, trying to finish it, which we will never do on our own, uh, we grow in how we were meant to be uh, living in his image. Uh, He made the church to be in specific places. He made the church to have specific work, and that that work includes elders, which is something that we talked about last week. So this week, we're looking at two portions of Titus, and I put them together because they deal with the same theme, which is what do you do with people who cause disharmony and undermine faith within the church? So let's start by looking at these people that Paul calls rebellious people. Who are the rebellious people? Um, I've read this passage many times over the past couple weeks, and I laugh almost every time I read verses 12 and 13 when it says, even one of their own men, a prophet from Crete, has said about them, the people of Crete are all liars, cruel animals, and lazy gluttons. And then you think that Paul will soften it, and he says, this is true. Uh, and as it turns out, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of scholars think that Paul was actually trying to be playful there by citing that person, by saying, yeah, things are a little messy there. That's true. Here's what somebody said about that. Um, to me, it kind of conjures a, a certain manager saying something like, I believe that the department is a breeding ground for monsters. What I fail to consider is that not all monsters are bad. That's for all the Michael Scott fans. Um, Paul describes this group of rebellious people as greedy. He says that they're liars, that they're lazy gluttons. He's, he is uh, pulling no punches. He says these folks are disobedient, uh, and he characterizes them as cruel animals. Uh, and that phrase, cruel animals, is a colloquialism in Greek that kind of means ugly dogs. And for me, that kind of conjures up the hyenas from Lion King or... Um, coyotes, if you know anything about them. If you Google a coyote, which I did this week, because I've seen a fair amount of coyotes in my life, but I I wanted to confirm my suspicion, which is that when you Google a coyote, they look like cute little wolves, and they look kind of pretty in the Google image search. But actually, they're pretty ugly. They can be really lean, and they are often really scarred from fighting each other and fighting uh, small animals. And uh, I think that coyotes are disturbing um, with all of their hooting and hollering. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard coyotes when you've been out uh, in nature, but I've spent a lot of time in the wilderness, and you can hear them howling, and, and you just know that they're sneaky and merciless toward other wildlife. And they're not really... Uh, like noticeably dangerous because they're actually not that big. They're, they're smaller than like some of the dogs of the people in this church. But they're dangerous because they're, they're sneaky and they're mean. And I think Paul's kind of conjuring up this image, this really harsh, intense image of these ugly dogs because maybe he's using this to draw out um, that the folks might think this isn't really that big of a threat. And he's saying, no, no, actually... These people that you're dealing with are a huge threat to what's going on in your community. Uh, Sure, coyotes look like dogs. uh, And sure, these people look like normal churchgoers. But Paul's being so extreme because he's saying, I want you to be clear, this is dangerous. 
So why might they not see the danger in these people? Well, I think the same reason the church is always struggling with people who are bringing disharmony into the community, which is Christian virtue. The church is an extremely vulnerable place because it operates on the ideal of love, right? Everyone is welcome here, and that, that is, that's not lip service. That's, that's the ideal that we're seeking. Um, so it's easy to exploit a population who feels a beautiful accommodation to accommodate, to host all people. And we're going to talk more at the end about the tension when Paul says, give them a first and second warning, because that feels a little dissonant with our call to hospitality, doesn't it? Um, but let's, let's look at these uh, rebellious people. We've, kinda, we've got a lot of adjectives for them now. Paul's given us plenty. But let's now look at what they're doing. Um, apparently, they're doing a lot of talking. Paul says in chapter 1 that they engage in a lot of useless talk. In chapter 3, he warns about getting involved in foolish discussions. And we're not going to dissect exactly what those conversations were, um, though scholars speculate about that. As far as I can tell, there's two groups of, of rebellious people in this congregation. Uh, the first are the Jewish Christians who are insisting on circumcision. And the second are the Gentile Christians or, Cre- uh, sorry, Gentile um, Cretans or Cretans, the people who live in Crete who are Gentiles, who are listening to the Jewish Christians and perpetuating their bad theology. Um, you can read more about the circumcision group, who, that, that one group that Paul's talking about. That is also something that was going on in Galatia. So if you're ever curious about what that is, the book of Galatians is a, is a place where you can read about that. But they're false teachers, and they're probably teaching that Christians need to do something extra in order to be a Christian, which that still exists today. Um, These Jews are probably telling Gentiles that they need to assimilate to Jewish culture and the law, that the men must be circumcised, and that they have to adopt Jewish customs. And then, only after that will they receive the free gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's what's probably being taught to them. These circumcision Christians, they're the same people that are talked about in chapter 3 of Titus, when it's, described, uh, when it's describing a group of people who are fighting about obedience to the Jewish laws. So you've got that group of people, right? But there's also these Cretans who are fighting about spiritual pedigrees, who are engaging in useless debates. They're being deceived, and they're leading families away from faith and community. So I don't know if you're where I was at at, at this point in the sermon, but I, it made me kind of sick picturing this church. Um, It seems to be a blend of people who argue a lot. Um, I picture a bunch of sort of interloping busybodies going around poking at people, judging people, worried about what everyone else is doing, um, instead of a place that is just beautiful and simple in its unity, in its beliefs. So I want to give you some modern examples so that we don't just say, well, that was that. Was that. We're not, no one here is trying to say, you know, that you need to be circumcised to be a member of Salem Prez. But there is a propensity in the modern church to do these two things. Um, one is there's a propensity on social media to say things like, if your church did not talk about blank today, 
Or if your church is not doing anything about blank, find a new church. Or if your church does not do this activity, you need to find a new church. And that kind of uncompromising reductionism is terrible for community, and it's probably very similar to what was going on in Titus. The other way I think this might manifest is people who love to pick really uh, marginal or tertiary issue theological debates, especially for the sport of it, which is something that Presbyterians are really prone to. Uh, And actually, the thing that is so hard about that that I think relates so well to this passage is that that is really hard for new Christians to encounter. When you're a new Christian and you're just trying to figure out, how do I even talk to the Lord? And someone is arguing about something dumb because they think it's fun to be smart about theology, that can be super destructive to their faith. So not always, but often I think that these these groups can fall into these traps. I think that sometimes people of a more conservative bent can be prone to that tedious interrogation around apologetics or secondary theological issues, and that can be really disheartening and kind of impatient with the rest of the people in the church and harm the spiritual vitality of that community. And then people of a more liberal bent can be really prone to that sort of if you're not going to do this as a church, then, you should, then we should leave kind of mentality. And I'm not saying that that's always true. I'm just saying that that is places where I've seen in my own heart both of those things manifest, especially in those types of postures when I've had those sorts of views over the years. Either way, these are just forms of, of sort of a fundamentalism. It's a legalism that cannot tolerate those with a more simple or slightly different worldview. But rather than focus the rest of this sermon on these, these ugly dogs, these picky debates, I want to ask, what is the alternative that's implied by Paul giving these warnings? Uh, what's the better alternative? What's missing in these communities. And I think there's three things that are missing in these little churches in Crete. First, there just seems to be no life of pious prayer. They're obviously having robust discussions, granted with a fair amount of manipulation involved, it seems. Um, I get the impression that there's a lot of sitting around together, but it's a lot of debate. Um, And Paul seems to be preferencing piety over the debates. Like I said last week, Paul portrays the ideal elder as having a hygienic faith. Uh, That Greek word that sounds like hygiene, it means a healthy spiritual life. That's what Paul is talking about, is, is what a beautiful church has. Leaders who are pursuing a healthy, beautiful life and then wanting to share that with others. A second, they're lacking those healthy leaders. And that's what last week's passage was about, chapter 1 of Titus, the first half of it anyways. No one's protecting these people from false teaching and manipulation. And then the third thing they're lacking is curiosity. When we enter a community with an assessment mindset instead of curiosity, then we're going to be prone to being reductionistic. And that seems to be what the problem is here. So to quote Ted Lasso, Quoting Walt Whitman, 
Be curious, not judgmental. Instead of asking questions of God, right, instead of going to the Lord together in their shared life of piety, they're listening to false teachers. Instead of having trustworthy leaders to turn to, they're doing it on their own without any verification from someone else. So now that we have this sort of positive description, I want to reckon with this recommendation of Paul on how we're supposed to deal with folks who are creating uh, sort of disunity within the church. He says these people are creating divisions. He says that they're wasting time with useless debates. And he says that others are forcing legalism that's causing people to leave the community. And Paul gives us a few uh, ideas of how to deal with these troubles, but they're a little hard to, deal, to, to sort of <laughs> put into practice on face value. First, he says in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 11, to silence them, which is pretty intense. And then in Titus 3, 9, he says, do not get involved with them. And in 3, 10, he says, warn them a first and a second time and then have nothing to do with them. Now, I don't think you can put those in that order because I don't think you can silence them and then have nothing to do with them and then go back to them and give them warnings. So I don't think it's totally clear that there's some sort of prescription here, but I do think that there is a sensibility that Paul's trying to get across to us, um, which is why I wanted to read these two sections together, because I think they give us, uh, when you take some of chapter one, the silencing language in chapter three, and you take this sort of warn them and then have nothing to do with them language. I think if you put that together, you get a sense of what Paul's trying to go for, which is that he's saying silence them, but I don't picture him saying literally you need to forcibly remove these people's opportunity to talk to you. Because I put it in concert with when Paul says, don't get involved. Don't get involved with them. And after warning them, have nothing to do with them. I think there's sort of a mature tuning out happening here. The silencing, it might include removing them from opportunities to take advantage of people. Um, otherwise, I think this is just a gentle but firm ignoring people who cause problems. The problem with these dissenters is that they're aggressive, they're incurious, they're willful. So to meet them with strong correction and assumptions around their motives and a strong posture would be to fight fire with fire. And I don't think that Paul's calling on the church to be getting tangled up with these dissenters. In fact, I'm almost positive of that because the man is a missionary. I think he's very interested in people hearing the gospel, not trying to sort out this whole situation. That raises a question for us, which is, do we deal with this at Salem Prez? And the answer is, of course we do, because this is a church and the church is full of imperfect people. I also want to admit that this is a very special place, and on the whole, I think that Salem is populated with lots of Christians who are very curious. If people struggle with something, my experience here has been that a lot of people approach issues with curiosity. curiosity. Um, something that we talk about in Exploring Salem, which is a little theology class that we do, is uh, we cover gossip one night. And I don't know if you've ever encountered Dave Ramsey. He's a sort of financial personality guru 
Uh, he's got a very strong personality, so whether you like him or don't love him, I do think that he has a really great definition of gossip. Uh, Dave Ramsey says that gossip is whenever we talk about something or someone that we take exception to, but not with the person who can solve the problem, which I think is a really helpful way to gauge gossip. Um, our staff, our elders, our servant leaders, um, hard, as it is, hard as it is sometimes, uh, we meet with a lot of people who I really appreciate come to us directly if they're having a hard time with something in the church, which is just curiosity at its best. Um, it would be foolish, though, if we only relied on the assumption that we're just going to keep being awesome at that, uh, that we will just always be a good and sweet and curious community. So I feel like we still need to address what Paul's getting at and how we might apply it should we encounter this type of, a, of an environment. Um, this, Salem Press, is still a collective of imperfect people. And even if we keep trying hard, evil will not want a church of curious and kind people to thrive. And so Paul says that you have to silence this kind of dissent. And he says to give people who are creating that disunity a first and a second warning. So how do you do that? If you hang around the local church long enough, you will encounter a resistance that wants to undermine your church's ability to be a harmonious community. That you will encounter this. If you keep going to church across your life, at some point you will encounter some serious conflict. It's happened in this church. It happens in every church. And I don't think that Paul's preparing a group of Christians to go around warning each other and silencing each other. That sounds like a nightmare church, right? If, if there already is disunity and then a group of people take it upon themselves to go and say, you know, we'll quiet these, these uh, knuckleheads. We can go around and really make these people be quiet. That, that sounds like a, a real recipe for um, a church that will have no one in it eventually. Um, it sounds really self-righteous, and it sounds uh, really divisive. But I do think that Paul is calling the people to defend the sheep, defend the flock. And there are times that people want to tear down the church. They want to undermine people's relationships with each other or with God by sowing doubt or spreading gossip. And Paul is saying, do not let that have power over your soul. Now, you might be thinking right now, wow, he's feeling very confident talking about these people out there that are going to be causing all these problems. Um, I wonder if he would describe them for us. And the answer is yes. Uh, I am one of them. I am one of these people. Unless you think that's some sort of platitude from the pulpit, um, I'm going to give you some examples of ways that I've done this. Um, there have been a number of times that I've said something divisive within our community. I mean, more than a number of times. Or, you know, I've said something that undermines Ben. Um, I'm a dangerous person <laughs> to have in a church community. Uh, my only hope is in Jesus' forgiveness and in the gentle correction of other people. That's our only hope in this kind of a scenario, is if we can see that, that we are these people, and then hope that we would receive correction that's given to us in gentleness and listen to it. Um, you know, I was talking to someone last night about the fact that, like, 
Some of the things that I've done and other pastors have done, if we did that in a corporate setting, man, we would have been fired so fast. It's, it's amazing that we've made it this long. Um, very early on in my time at Salem, I posted a, a sort of small rant on Instagram about a famous Christian figure. And one of the elders came up to me right in the back there before church and just asked me if I, if I had known that Christian personally, if that's how I would have handled it. And then he said, he also asked, do you think that that was a helpful way to use Instagram for the rest of the people around you in this church? And man, was that a great correction to, to hear. Because what I was doing was I was undermining my ability to have a healthy relationship with anyone who liked that Christian figure, right? Um, and I just publicly attacked a fellow brother in Christ who I don't even know. I was a coyote, you know, I was an ugly dog. I was causing division. There was another time, um, I can remember this also viscerally, where I was preaching. Um, it was when we were back at Redeemer, uh, when the ceiling caved in here. And I was preaching on um, a passage in the Old Testament, and I made a very black and white statement about how if our church did not take a certain stance on a political issue, we would be failing as Christians was the phrase that I used. And someone came up to me in the little copy room at Redeemer afterwards and just said, you really think that like we will fail as Christians if we don't do that? And, and how do you want to defend that biblically? And um, I realized, man, even, even if the theology was right, the tone and the rhetoric was just divisive and very biting. Um, if you find yourself in a community of people like that, like this guy, um, then you have to warn them. And the way that you warn them is a little counterintuitive. But this is how you do it. You ask someone a question about, do you really, do you really think that that is the way that you want to comport yourself with people that you love? And then you point them to this table, and you remind them to lower their expectations for everyone else, and you remind them that God has assembled the church and not them, and that that's not something that should feel, uh, you know, disempowering for them, but actually incredibly freeing. Because what's really missing from these people who engage in rebellious speech and useless debates is grace. And at some point, there are people who will refuse to extend grace to anyone in their life. And at that point, you kind of do have to just tune it out. When someone wants to press into their doubt or some fringe theology in a way that they want to spread to others, engage in divisive gossip, help them. Help them by having a gentle posture and say to them something like, the way that you are thinking feels really dark, and it feels really distant from the gentle and lowly Savior who gave us this table. You know, be curious. Ask them how much God loves them. I mean, what a jujitsu move to ask a judgmental person. I don't, is this a jujitsu move? <laughs> what, what a... What a great way to flip it and say to someone who is dealing with 
darkness and heaviness to say, how much does God love you? You know, be curious. Extend them grace. And for most people, that will quiet their inner coyote in the most beautiful way. The warnings that Paul's saying here, when he says warn them first, warn them twice, he's saying tell them the gospel. And if the gospel, if you go to a person and you say, how much does God love you? And, and how much grace has he given you? And how much do I love you? And how low are my expectations for you? If you can go to someone in that posture and, and that does nothing, then, then you, do, you give them to God. And you know that that's okay. And then you don't walk away in judgmentalism. Instead, you come to this table as a beggar, not a judge, lest you find yourself, Paul writes that in Galatians 6, lest you find yourself tempted by the same thing because of your self-righteousness. God made humans to live in community with him and each other. So the start of creation was God plus Adam plus Eve. That was the prototype for the human experience. But that is not, we don't, we don't live that way. Because Adam and Eve cut God out of the equation. And we are in that. We are living in that. And we're part of that subtraction. We do have each other, messy as that can be, but we are still distant from God. And that is why when we were divisive, when we are divisive, when we are the ugly dogs of our community, uh, he doesn't give us a warning from a distance, but instead he closed the gap. He covered the distance by coming to us. And interestingly, he lived a perfectly obedient life. Why would he do that? He was perfectly obedient, not so that we would create a church community that was also perfectly obedient, okay? But instead, after a whole life of perfect obedience, right when we thought he was teaching us, I mean, read the Gospels, look at every time one of them talks to him. They never get it. Every time they think he is teaching them what they are supposed to do, and, and he is not saying that. And that is all the way up until he is crucified and even it happens on the road to Emmaus and to Doubting Thomas. Right at the moment when he, we think that he's asking us to imitate him, he let himself be brutally killed. And the night before he was put to death, after being nothing but gentle and lowly and obedient to his own law, he took bread and a cup, and he told his disciples that he would die for them and that his sacrifice would nourish us in the midst of that pain, of that division, would nourish us not with obedience, not with right thinking, but with grace until he returns. Amen. So on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks to the Father 
And he broke it, and he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup, and he said, this is the cup of my blood. This is the blood of the new covenant. And the new covenant says, I will do everything that is necessary to keep this promise. You need not do anything but come and drink of it. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, writer of Galatians, writer of Titus, says in 1 Corinthians that whenever we come together as a community, we do this in remembrance of him, that we would receive that grace, be nourished by that grace. Um, This is a table for ugly dogs. This is a table for people who are self-righteous. It's a table for people who are judgmental. if, you're, if that's you, come on up. <laughs> I'll be taking this supper as one of those people. Um, this is also a table for people who don't totally know what they believe, but they know that they want Jesus to, to be their savior. The bar is very low. This is not a place for people who are perfectly obedient. These aren't, this is not the table for people who hold the church together. There's no expectations to come to this table. But we do always want to encourage people that if you don't feel like Jesus is who you want to follow, who you want to receive grace from, that is okay. And we don't want you to step into this as some sort of empty ritual. This is not something you should feel pressured in. Um, As Mary Margaret said, we as a church want to be a place where people can wrestle with what you believe. So please don't feel any pressure. Love these rascals.